Hello and welcome to the GJ Sports Pod, where I'm going to be playing some of the audio from my YouTube videos, as well as some original content over the next few weeks. There's stories from Celtic, the NFL and cycling, as well as a snooker debate and a football quiz. We'll get underway with our snooker debate, so who do you think is the best snooker player of all time? Hello and welcome to our latest video where hot on the heels of the Snooker World Championships ending, we'll be discussing who is the best snooker player of all time. There's a few players who might feel they have a right to be included in the discussion with the likes of Steve Davis, Ray Reardon, Alex Higgins and even Jimmy White often regarded as some of the best but the numbers point to two men being a little bit ahead of the rest. Stephen Hendry holds a record of having won the most world titles with seven but does Ronnie O'Sullivan winning his sixth title last week bring the rug up past the Scott or does Hendry still edge it? It's discussed in terms of world titles which is the ultimate test for a snooker player. Hendry leads 7-6, but Ronnie still active and could equal or even surpass Hendry's record. It's also worth noting that Hendry won all his titles over a 9 year run. His first came in 1990 and his last came in 1999, with John Porrett, Ken Doherty and John Higgins the only others to win titles in the, in the decade of the 1990s. Ronnie's won his 6 over a much longer period with the first coming in 2001 and the most recent this year, 2020. So. That's a 19 year period which certainly gives him the edge in terms of longevity. An interesting record Henry holds is for the longest period of being the world number one player. Um, between April 1990 and May 1998 he was world number one and then he had another year at the top of the rankings in May 2006 until May 2007. Ronnie's record isn't as good and He's held the number one spot for five and a half years. And that's actually totaling over four different periods. Um, he first hit the, the peak in May 2003 and remained there for one year. He returned to the top between May 2004 and May 2006. And then again in May 2008 to May 2010. Before having another spell at the top from March 2019 to August 2019. While that record's impressive for Hendry, it could be argued that Ronnie's schedule isn't great for his ranking as he tends to pick and choose his tournaments. In terms of major success, the Worlds are the top of the tree, but the other two tournaments that are regarded as majors in snooker terms are together, obviously they're known as the Triple Crown. Hendry's won 18 Triple Crown titles with his seven World Championships, five UK Championships and six Masters titles. That's second best again to Ronnie, who has a total of 20 with six World Titles, seven UK Championships and seven Masters titles. Snooker competitions tend to be split into ranking and non-ranking events. Once again, Ronnie and Hendry are at the top of the scale, with Hendry previously holding the record for most ranking event wins in 36, which Ronnie has now surpassed having won 37 ranking events. However, just to muddy the waters a bit more, Hendry has won more tournaments overall, with a grand total of 75 wins, the Ronnie's tally of 73. Ronnie may well go on to beat that record, but right now Hendry has got more silverware. To be a, cl a top class snooker player you have to be able to score when you get a chance and unsurprisingly Hendry and O'Sullivan are among the best. Hendry recorded 775 centuries in his career but Ronnie leads the way in this category with over 1,000 breaks of 100 or more throughout his career. It's worth noting that the list of most 100 plus breaks does not feature or does sorry feature a lot of modern players with Hendry the only player in the top 10 who has retired so it's not necessarily a fair measure between the two. 
Similarly, the two are on top, top in terms of competitive 147 breaks, with Ronnie 15-11 ahead. But again, when Henry won his last world title, there had only been 29 147s in competitive competitions in comparison to the tally now that stands at 157. Finally, and arguably the fairest way to make a decision is head-to-head. The two have played each other 56 times in all manner of competitions and it's Ronnie who has the edge with 30 wins. Henry has 21 wins to his name with the other five being drawn in events like the Premier League or the Old Matchroom League. In terms of total frames, it's a bit closer with Ronnie having won 324 frames to Henry's 296. As it stands, most of the numbers point to Ronnie being the best player of all time. He's surpassed Henry in almost every category except world titles. However, Henry and his supporters will point to that being the most important category, and they're right. Ronnie can certainly lay claim to being the best snooker player of all time, and overall most of the stats prove it. But if he wants to remove all doubt and take his place as the undisputed king of the beige, then he might still have to do a bit more when the tour reaches the Crucible Theatre next season. That was my debate on the best snooker player of all time. Incidentally, the majority of the feedback seems to be siding with Ronnie as the best of all time. Do you agree? Moving on, here's the first of two Celtic stories as I tell the tale behind this year's away kit. Hello and welcome to the latest episode on the channel where today I'll be telling the story that inspired Celtic's new away kit. Celtic announced in the summer that they'd no longer continue with New Balance as their kit manufacturer and would instead switch to Adidas. With that brought much anticipation about what Celtic's new strips would look like but it's the away strip that's caught the attention of the fans. Once it came out that the kit would be a light green colour, the internet suddenly filled up with talk of Love Street, which is something that all Celtic fans will understand, but the masses won't. The new kit's similar to one Celtic wore in the 1980s, and it's one that's particularly remembered for events that occurred at St Mirren's Love Street ground. Here's the story of what happened that day. The 3rd of May 1986, was supposed to be a special day for Heart of Midlothian. They needed a single point from their game against Dundee at Dens Park to win the fifth league to win their fifth league title in their history and their first one since 1960. Hearts hadn't lost a game since September 1985 and although Dundee still had a chance of European football, Hearts were expected to do enough to secure the title. Even if they did slip up in the final day, their closest rival Celtic would still have to win by enough to achieve a four-goal swing and goal difference. Even the most die-hard of Celtic fans didn't think the boys could turn it around, but nonetheless they travelled to Paisley to watch their heroes take on St Moran at Love Street in their thousands. The travelling Celtic fans were rewarded with an excellent performance as the Hoops took a 4-0 lead before half-time, thanks to goals from Brian McClare, Paul McStay and a brace from Morris Johnson. However, it was all in vain as Hearts and Dundee were still goalless, meaning that regardless of how many Celtic scored, it would all be in vain as the jammed Hearts only needed a draw. Celtic added a fifth goal in the second half, courtesy of McClare, but the clock was ticking away with Hearts seemingly on their way to their first title in 26 years. Dundee were pressing for a winner, but Hearts were solid in defence and when their back line was breached, the Dundee forwards found Hearts stopper Henry Smith in inspired form. Then it happened. A Dundee corner was headed into the path of substitute Albert Kidd and he kept his head to shoot powerfully into the net, yards in front of the thousands of travelling Hearts fans with just seven minutes to play. 
There wasn't a murmur from the Hearts fans as the Dundee fans celebrated, but it was nothing in comparison to the scenes at Love Street. Celtic were attacking down the right wing, and as a cross landed safely into the arms of the St Mirren goalkeeper, the ground erupted. There were no mobile phones, text messages or goal scoring alerts in those days and instead it seemed that every Celtic fan in the stadium was listening to the radio as the news of Kid's goal came through. With Hearts behind and Celtic comfortably ahead, the title was now going to Glasgow and thus Hearts could equalise. They pushed bodies forward but the Dundee defence were strong and four minutes after Kid broke the deadlock, he picked up the ball on the right wing Skipped past two men, played a 1-2 and then blasted the ball into the net to make absolutely sure that the league title would belong to Celtic. Minutes later, the final whistle blew at Love Street and against all the odds, Celtic had won their 34th league title and Hearts had missed their golden opportunity. Since that day, the Scottish titles never left Glasgow. The Celtic and Rangers won in everything since. Hearts, they've never really came close to winning the title again. They finished second three times, but they were always quite a distance behind the eventual winners. Love Street for them is the one that got away with what happened at Dens Park. But as far as the name Love Street and the green kit that Celtic wore that day, it's always going to have a special place in the heart of all Celtic fans. That was the story of a very famous day in the history of Celtic Football Club. Next up, we're going across to America for a story on one of the most popular video games of all time. Most of you will have played Madden at some point, but what do you know about the history of the cover athletes? Nowadays, the name John Madden is purely associated with the NFL game. Prior to that, Madden had been a player for a short spell before having to retire the injury, and then he had a near 20-year spell as a coach, in which he spent a decade as head coach of the Oakland Raiders. In that decade, he won a Super Bowl and reached the playoffs in eight of his ten seasons. After leaving the Raiders in 1978, he took up a job as a television analyst and in 1988, he gave his name to Electronic Arts' series of NFL video games. Over the years, the game has grown considerably as games consoles have become more and more popular and for an NFL player, the next biggest prize to win in the Super Bowl is being selected to feature on the cover of Madden. In the early days, Madden himself always featured on the cover. He was usually on his own, but Madden 95 and Madden 2000 did feature players in the background. Madden 2001 saw a change in the franchise as John Madden was relegated to the background and for the first time it was a player that was the main feature on the game's cover with the Tennessee Titans running back Eddie George, the chosen one. George was born in Philadelphia and performed well in high school which earned him a place at Ohio State University. He played a bit part role in his freshman and sophomore years but still managed 8 touchdowns and 399 yards from 79 carries before earning the starting spot in his junior year. He had a good junior year but it was his performances as a senior that really thrust him into the spotlight. 1,927 yards and 24 touchdowns on the ground with a further 417 yards and another touchdown through the air put him among the best in the country and he was rewarded by winning the Heisman Trophy in 1995. George entered the draft in 1996 and was selected 14th overall by the Houston Oilers. He played one season in Houston in which he won Rookie of the Year, 
before the franchise moved to Tennessee. In each of his three seasons with the Oilers, he ran for around 1,300 yards per season. In his fourth season, Tennessee changed their name to the Titans, and it brought them good fortune as they made it all the way to the Super Bowl before losing to the St. Louis Rams. George had performed admirably, rushing for 12 touchdowns throughout the season and adding another four through the air. George's profile was high and it was in the off-season between Super Bowl 34 and the beginning of the 2000 season that he was selected as the cover athlete for Madden 2001. While many talk about the Madden curse, with a number of cover athletes getting injured or losing form, George looked to be unaffected initially. In the regular season, he had career highs with 1,509 rushing yards, 14 rushing touchdowns and 50 receptions, but in the playoffs... His bobbled catch was intercepted which led to the Baltimore Ravens beating the Titans on their way to a Super Bowl win over the New York Giants. That was the beginning of the end for George as his productivity productivity dropped. He managed 12 rushing touchdowns in 2002 but having ran for at least 1,300 yards every year until then he was unable to get past 1,165 yards over the next three years. After the 2003 season, George decided to leave the Titans due to a salary dispute and signed for the Dallas Cowboys. He was never able to recapture his early form and after running for 432 yards and 4 touchdowns, he left and never played in the NFL again. His number 27 shirt has been retired at both Ohio State and the Tennessee Titans and unsurprisingly as a Heisman Trophy winner, he is in the College Football Hall of Fame. He has yet to make it into the NFL Hall of Fame, despite being eligible for a decade. He has never made it beyond the first round of voting, and it looks unlikely that he ever will at this stage. And while that will no doubt be disappointing, he can console himself with the knowledge that he belongs to an even smaller band of NFL stars, who have made it onto the front cover of the NFL's flagship video game. That was a tale of Eddie George, the first man to go ahead of Madden on the cover of a video game. Next up, we're back to Celtic Park to hear the story of the Prince of Goalkeepers, John Thompson. Celtic have a long list of heroes and legends. The Lisbon Lions are on a pedestal of their own, but perhaps the most tragic of all the legends is the story of the Prince of Goalkeepers, John Thompson. Thompson was born in Kirkcaldy, Fife in 1909 and grew up in the nearby mining town of Cardendon. He showed early promise as a goalkeeper in his school days but at the age of 14 years old he followed in his father, John Senior's footsteps by taking up a job in the Bow Hill Colliery where he was posted 300 yards below the surface in the coal mine. He continued to play football and had a year with Bow Hill Rovers in the Fife Junior League before moving to Wellesley Juniors. In 1926, Celtic manager Willie Mealy sent a scout to a Wellesley match to look at the opposition's goalkeeper, but Thompson performed so well that the scout came back with a report that Mealy should sign him instead. Shortly afterwards, Celtic paid £10 for the 17-year-old goalkeeper, and in February 1927, he made his debut keeping his place in the team as the club went on to win the Scottish Cup in his first season. Thompson continued to prove himself as Celtic's number one, despite his small stature. 
He was only five foot nine, but what he lacked in size, he made up with heart as shown when he broke his jaw, several ribs, damaged his collarbone, and lost two teeth during a game against Airdrieonians in 1930. Thompson would make his debut for Scotland later that year, and added another three caps over the next year. Sildic and Thompson won another Scottish Cup in 1931, which was the second for the goalkeeper and his fifth honour overall, with three Glasgow Cup winners medals also in the trophy cabinet. As Sildic's in Scotland's number one, the future looked to be full of promise for Thompson, but sadly this story has a tragic ending. On the 5th of September 1931, he was keeping goal for Sildic against Rangers at Ibrox, and shortly after half-time, Sam English was played in on goal and Thompson, brave as always, dived at his feet to make the save. Unfortunately in the collision, Thompson's head collided with the Rangers man's knee and it resulted in a fractured skull and a ruptured artery in his temple. He received treatment on the pitch before being whisked off to the Victoria Infirmary in Glasgow. He had a two-inch depression on his skull and suffered a major convulsion which led to doctors attempting emergency surgery to reduce the pressure from the swelling on his brain, but they were unable to save him and Thompson passed away that evening. The football community was stunned, none more so than Sam English. It was a complete accident and the inquest cleared him of any wrongdoing, but the incident followed him for the rest of his time in Scotland with fans jeering his every touch. He soon left for England but retired just seven years later, whilst in his late 20s. He never recovered from the incident and on his retirement said that the last seven years were joyless sport. Thompson's funeral was a huge event, with over 30,000 people in attendance, many of whom walked the 55 miles from Glasgow to his hometown of Cardendon. 2,000 people made the journey by train, with another 20,000 at the train station in Glasgow, unable to get a place on a train or simply unable to afford a ticket. The legend of John Thompson or the Prince of Goalkeepers as he's known, continues to grow. He has been the topic of books, songs and even plays over the years. In 2008, he was inducted into the Scottish Football Hall of Fame, and on the 80th anniversary of his death in 2011, a walk was held in his memory with fans following the path the mourners took in 1931 from Glasgow to Cardendon. On his grave, the inscription reads, They never die who live in the hearts they leave behind. And it's fair to say that as long as there is a Celtic football club, the legend of the Prince of Goalkeepers will never die. John Thompson, the Prince of Goalkeepers. From football to cycling, we go to hear the story of a successful Irishman in the 1980s. Sam Bennett kept his nerve at the weekend to secure the green jersey as winner of the points classification in this year's delayed Tour de France. It was a fantastic achievement for the Irishman and it will take Irish cycling fans back to the heyday of the 1980s when Irish men were among the best cyclists in the world. Stephen Roach achieved notoriety throughout the 80s, but it was in 1987 that the Dundrum man completed a remarkable triple crown with wins in the Tour de France, the Giro d'Italia and the World Road Race Championships but one of his biggest rivals at the time was fellow Irishman, Sean Kelly. Kelly was born in carrick on swire County Tipperary, in 1956. carrick on swire incidentally, is the town that Sam Bennett moved to as a child, after being born in Belgium, where his father played as a professional footballer. 
That coincidence is not the only one between the two now that Bennett has won the green jersey. Sean Kelly was 13 before he seriously took up cycling. His brother Joe had begun to cycle to school and entered several local races, which inspired the young Sean to get involved too. He won his first ever race and by the age of 16 he won the National Junior Championship, a title he would defend the following year. At 17 he began entering senior races and won two Shea Elliott trophies, a race in memory of the first Irishman to win a stage of the Tour de France and several stages of the Tour of Ireland. He was caught up in controversy when he received a ban from the International Olympic Committee for competing in South Africa ahead of the 1976 Olympic Games, as the IOC had banned athletes from racing there in protest against apartheid. Kelly didn't let this stop his progression as a cyclist and participated in the Tour of Britain and a number of races in France, which drew the attention of professional teams and he ended up signing a contract to compete in France at the beginning of 1977. Kelly continued to grow over the next few years and even won a stage at the Tour de France in 1978, but it wasn't until 1980 that the real success began. His first major honour didn't come in France, but on the other side of the Pyrenees as he won the green jersey, also awarded for winning the points classification at the Vuelta at España. The points classification is generally regarded as the prize for sprinters on the classic tours but there are other variables that mean you have to be a more rounded rider than a pure out-and-out sprinter. This was perfect for Kelly, who was an excellent sprinter, but also had the necessary attributes to excel in other areas, and he would prove this time and time again in the 80s. After a bit of to and fro in the early 80s, Kelly signed up to the team managed by Jean de Grabaldi, who had originally signed him in 1977 and 1982, and from here his career leapt forward. He immediately won the Paris de Nice, or Race to the Sun as it's commonly known, and followed that up by winning the green jersey at the Tour de France. These two wins would be the first of multiple victories as he would win Paris de Nice seven times in a row between 1982 and 1988. He would follow up green jersey win at the Tour in 1982 by defending the jersey successfully in 1983, and by now he was among the best riders in the world in what was a fantastic era for cycling with Bernard Hinault, Greg LeMond and Laurent Fignon at the top of their game. 1985 saw Kelly win the green jersey at the Tour de France and the Volta a España, and in 1986 he was able to defend the jersey he had won in Spain, but perhaps his greatest honour was still to come. In 1988 he won the green jersey at the Volta a España, but this time it was overshadowed by a sublime time trial on the penultimate day of racing, which took Kelly to the top of the general classification, and he was able to defend his lead in the final day to become Ireland's first ever winner of the Volta España. The following year, Kelly won his fourth and final green jersey at the Tour de France to leave himself with a record of four green jerseys in both France and Spain, as well as the single yellow jersey for his win in Spain. He also had five stage wins in France and a remarkable 16 stage wins in Spain that's still fifth on the list of most wins at the Volta España. While he never won another major title at the Classics, he did add a couple more single-day wins to his CV, with victory at the Milan de San Remo race, Liege Baston de Liege and Giro de Lombardia races. Kelly retired from professional cycling in 1994 and it's to his credit that in his last ever race he returned to Carrick and Soir with legendary figures like Eddie Merckx, Laurent Fignon, Bernard Hinault and Stephen Roach, which goes to show how highly Kelly was regarded in cycling circles. 
Since retirement, Kelly has become a commentator for Eurosport cycling coverage and he even had his own team between 2006 and 2017, which for a time included a young Sam Bennett. Bennett is very much a man of the moment thanks to his recent success in France. However, at 29 years old, he will struggle to match Sean Kelly's record of four green jerseys in France. But there's little doubt that by winning this one, he can consider himself one of Ireland's greatest cyclists alongside Kelly and Roach. That was the story of Sean Kelly. Finally this week, we have our football quiz. Ten questions, so see how much you know. Hello and welcome to this week's quiz where after last week's uh, sport quiz it's uh, football this week so um, we had quite a lot of quite a lot of um, hits last week I think overall between the um, the YouTube video and the uh, doing the quiz just o- just online um, there was about 500 hits which was which was great so um, without further ado here's the this week's football quiz. So, question one. Which city hosted Thursday night's UEFA Super Cup between Bayern Munich and Sevilla? Was it Athens, Bucharest or Budapest? That's which city hosted Thursday night's UEFA Super Cup between Bayern Munich and Sevilla? Was it Athens, Bucharest or Budapest? The answer is Budapest. The game was played in the Puskas Arena with Bayern Munich running out 2-1 winners in the end. Question 2. Which London club play their home games at the Valley? Is it Charlton Athletic, Leighton Orient or AFC Wimbledon? That's which London club play their home games at the Valley? Charlton Athletic, Leighton Orient or AFC Wimbledon? The answer is League One's Charlton Athletic. Question three. Which of these sides has won their domestic league title the fewest times? Is it Bayern Munich, Juventus or Real Madrid? That's which of these sides has won their domestic league title the fewest times? Is it Bayern Munich, Juventus or Real Madrid? The answer is Bayern Munich, who have won 30 Bundesliga titles. Juventus 36, depending on whether you, you go with the Calcio Poli scandal and, and the titles that were stripped. And Real Madrid of 34 La Liga crowns. So, question four. Since the CONCACAF Champions League began in 2008, how many times has a Mexican club been crowned winners? That's, since the CONCACAF Champions League began in 2008, how many times has a Mexican club been crowned winners? The answers are 5, 8 or 11. Since the CONCACAF Champions League began in 2008, how many times has a Mexican club been crowned winners? 5, 8 or 11. The answer is, in 11 competitions, every single one of them has been won by a Mexican team with eight of those also having a Mexican runner-up. Question five. Which of these players has won most caps for Scotland? Gary Caldwell, Gary Naismith or Gary McAllister? That's which of these players has won more caps for Scotland? Is it Gary Caldwell, Gary Naismith 
or Gary McAllister? The answer is Gary McAllister, who has 57 caps, Caldwell is 55 and Naismith 46. Question 6. Which of these players were sold by Barcelona for the most money? Is it Arturo Vidal, Ivan Rakitic or Luis Suarez? That's which of these players were sold by Barcelona for the most money? Is it Arturo Vidal, Ivan Rakitic or Luis Suarez? The answer is Ivan Rakitic with Sevilla paying 1.35 million um, for his services. Suarez and Vidal are initially free with, um, I know Suarez has um, potential to, to cost some money, but at the moment it's for free. It's a free transfer. Question 7. For which player did Bayern Munich pay 80 million euros, a record transfer fee for all German clubs? Was it Kingsley Coman, Benjamin Pavard or Lucas Hernandez? That's, for which player did Bayern Munich pay 80 million euros, a record transfer fee for all German clubs? Is it Kingsley Coman, Benjamin Pavard or Lucas Hernandez? The answer is Lucas Hernandez. Question 8. Who is currently the Premier League's longest serving manager? Is it Jurgen Klopp, Sean Dyche or Chris Wilder? Who is currently the Premier League's longest serving manager? Jurgen Klopp, Sean Dyche or Chris Wilder? The answer is Sean Dyche who's just under 8 years with Burnley while Klopp and Wilder are both in their 5th year with their current employers. Question 9. Manchester United's Old Trafford has the highest capacity in the Premier League, but who play at the league's second biggest stadium? Is it Tottenham Hotspur, Arsenal or West Ham? Manchester United's Old Trafford has the highest capacity in the Premier League, but who play at the league's second biggest stadium? Is it Tottenham Hotspur, Arsenal or West Ham? The answer is the new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium holds just over 62,000 with the Arsenal ground and West Ham grounds both being in the region of about 60,000. So the answer is Tottenham. Question 10. Diego Godin has left Inter Milan to join which other Serie A side? Bologna, Cagliari or Udinese? Diego Godin has left Inter Milan to join which other Serie A side? Is it Bologna, Cagliari or Udinese? The answer is Cagliari, which um, will probably come as a bit of a surprise. He's, you know, he left Atletico Madrid, went to Inter and he's a year later he's at Cagliari. Um, but it's a good sign for, um, for, it's a good sign for Cagliari. So that's the 10 questions in this week's quiz. Um, you can obviously um, post your scores. It'd be great to hear from people. It's obviously, I would love it if some people could like the videos and stuff because it's just the way um, YouTube works. It it, uh, it means then that a lot of other users end up seeing your videos. It pops up like whenever, you know, like the on the homepages and stuff. So it'd be great if some people could do that to help out. Um, but obviously next week I'll be back again with... Uh, it's another uh, quiz. This the next week will be sport, 
again, which also seemed to go down well, so we'll, I'll keep at it for a while. Um, in the meantime, there'll be there'll be more videos. There'll probably be more football videos and stuff over the weekend. I'm working on another video, um, a wee cycling video, which will be could, might be interesting to some people. But um, until then, thanks for listening and thanks for watching. And uh, don't forget to post your scores in the comments. Thank you. That's all we have for this week. But if you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe. And I'll be aiming to have at least one episode out every week. Thank you.